Well, this morning is our final message from Ephesians chapter 4, verses 1 to 16. It's on walking worthy of our calling and walking in unity. The way that we walk worthy of our calling is by walking in unity. And I, I called this message the growth of unity. The growth of of unity. Let's I wasn't going to do this, but let's go ahead, let's open our Bibles and let's turn to Ephesians chapter 4 and let's just read the whole section again just so that it's in your mind as we work through our message this morning. So starting in verse 1, we're we're really on verses 14 to 16, but I just want the whole context to be in your mind as we work through this. Ephesians 4 starting in verse 1, I therefore A prisoner for the Lord urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called, with all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love, eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. There is one body and one Spirit, just as you are called to one hope that belongs to your call. One Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all who is over all and through all and in all. But grace was given to each one of us according to the measure of Christ's gift. Therefore it says, when he ascended on high, he led a host of captives and he gave gifts to men. In saying he ascended, what does it mean but that he had also descended into the lower regions the earth. He who descended is the one who also ascended far above all the heavens that he might fill all things. And he gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds and teachers to equip the saints for the work of ministry, for building up the body of Christ until we all attain to the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God to mature manhood to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ, so that we may no longer be children tossed to and fro by the waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by human cunning, by craftiness in deceitful schemes. Rather, speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in every way into Him who is the head, into Christ, from whom the whole body joined and held together by every joint with which it is equipped, when each part is working properly, makes the body grow so that it builds itself up in love. Well, if you remember back to the the beginning of this series five weeks ago, We dealt with one of the major sources of disunity in the church, and that was relational issues between one another. And Paul's strategy was to urge the church to walk with all humility. Remember that? He, He urged the church to walk with all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love, eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. This was what it means to walk worthy of our calling, to walk worthy of our salvation. And again, it's all humility, all gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love. 
And all of those things, all of those attributes, all of, uh, of, of walking in that way is going to mitigate relational issues between brothers and sisters in the church. Relational issues are one of the major causes of disunity in the church. And walking in disunity, again, is walking unworthy of our salvation. Now, the second major cause of disunity in the church, and if you're ready for this, what, in fact, what would you guess? What would you guess would be the, the second major cause of disunity in the church? What causes disunity? Where does it come from? I guess there's, there's deeper causes. You know, if you wanted to ask what's the ultimate cause of disunity, I think the answer there would be that sin would be the ultimate cause of disunity. But what, what, what I'm talking about here is I'm talking about what, what they call the proximate cause, the, the near cause, the, the closest cause. Maybe we, we might say, like, what's the surface level cause of disunity? And in the same way that sin results in relational issues which produces disunity, so sin results in doctrinal issues which produces disunity in the church. Doctrinal differences are the other major cause of division in the church. And we've seen this already kind of hinted at in our text as Paul is urging us to walk worthy of our calling to walk in unity. We've kind of seen already hints of this idea of of doctrinal differences. In verse 5 where Paul says that there is one faith. One true body of doctrine given by the one true God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. That's kind of hinted to us or signaled to us already that, that he's going to want to talk about doctrinal unity. We also saw in verse 13 where the goal of, of building up the body of Christ was that we would all attain to the unity of the faith. And that we would all attain to the unity of the knowledge of the Son of God. Those are, those are doctrinal level things. The walk worthy of our salvation means that we pursue unity in both our relationships and in our doctrinal understanding. Look at verse 13, but, but actually starting at the end of verse 12 of our text here, it says, for building up the body of Christ until we all attain to the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God to mature manhood to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ. And if you think about it, if we are being built up as the body of Christ to mature manhood to the, the measure of the, the stature, the height the, of, the, of the fullness of Christ, then, then what's happening is that we are being built up to be like Christ. And then if we think about it, if you ask this question, well, how is Christ in these two areas of, of relational and, and doctrinal? Um, you know, where is Christ at? How is, how is Jesus Christ relationally? Well, even though he's, he's God, he humbled himself. He humbled himself as a man, and he is gentle and lowly of heart, Matthew eleven twenty nine. How is Christ? He is patient. How does he walk? He is, he bore with sinful men in love as he walked this earth. Jesus Christ is the perfect picture of relational unity that, that Paul is urging us 
two. Well, now what about the doctrinal side? Well, how is, how is Christ doctrinally? And it almost seems kind of funny to even ask that because we know that he is the way, the truth, and the life. And as God, he is true and he knows all things. John, John 1.14 puts both of these things together nicely when, when John says, and the word became flesh and dwelt among us and we have seen his glory Glory as of the only Son from the Father. And then he says, full of grace and truth. Full of grace and truth. Grace is the relational side, the character side. Truth is the doctrinal side. And to the extent then that we mature to be like Christ, we're also going to grow in the knowledge of, of truth and in the practice of grace. And both of these things, again, are the causes of disunity. And, and they'll be put to death if we follow Paul's direction in this section of Scripture. Relational and doctrinal unity will be, will, be, will, be, will be put away if we follow what Paul urges us to in this text. And our text today focuses more on the doctrinal cause than it does on the relational. The relational we've kind of really dealt with already in verses 1 to, maybe we could even just say verses 1 to 3. Um, our text today focuses more on the doctrine. Now, I called this a few minutes ago, doctrinal differences. And Paul recognizes that there are going to exist doctrinal differences in the church, just like he recognizes that there's going to be relational issues in the church. You know, there'd be no need to bear with one another in love if, there, if it was always just so easy and flowing and smooth and there was, there was no issues in the church. If there was no tensions from time to time, Paul would have no need to urge the church in that way. And in the same way, there would be no need for us to attain the unity of the faith if every believer was already there. The New Testament is full of examples of the apostles standing against bad doctrine that was infiltrating the church. In Acts 15, the apostles and the elders of the Jerusalem church gathered to discuss whether the Gentiles needed to be circumcised according to the custom of Moses in order that they might be saved, Acts 15 verse 1. Most of the epistles, if we think about it, most of the epistles in the New Testament deal in one way or another with doctrinal errors or doctrinal misunderstandings that had come into the churches. And we could kind of go through almost every book, and we're going to go through a few of them here, and just kind of think about it. And if, you, if we start with Romans, all these letters in the New Testament, Romans, Paul presents his doctrine of the gospel to the believers in Rome because he wants to go on a, a mission kind of beyond Rome to Spain. And so he presents to them his understanding of the gospel in order that they might be convinced to support him. And of course, that, that mission never happened, but Paul is presenting the truth there so that they would want to support him. We come to 1 Corinthians and the, the church is swayed at the beginning, chapters 1 to 4, by worldly wisdom and, and powerful preaching, rhetorical kind of worldly style preaching. And Paul wrote them to tell them that the true power is in the Lord and in the word of God who awakens through his word. And so he's correcting their misunderstanding of the way that the God works in the book of 1 Corinthians. And then in, after those first chapters... 
And actually, maybe I should even say in, in those first four chapters, there's this division that's happening in the church and they're arguing about who's the best preacher and which one is, is the, the best to follow and who has the best preaching style. And so Paul kind of deals with that in chapters 1 to 4. And then in chapters 5 to 15, he, he answers specific doctrinal questions that the Corinthians had for him. And then in 2 Corinthians, Paul needs to defend his apostleship because of false apostles had infiltrated the church in Corinth. And they were trying to convince the Corinthians that Paul wasn't a good apostle and they were better apostles. And so, so Paul has to defend his ministry to them and say, tell them that I'm a true apostle of the Lord. Well, let's go to Galatians. The only, uh, you know, the, the Galatians deals with the Judaizer heresy. And Paul taught the Galatians or he reminded them about justification by faith. Ephesians is actually one of the only letters, one of the only epistles without doctrinal issues in the church. And so if you read through Ephesians, you're not going to find a, a doctrinal issue that Paul's dealing with there. But we have this whole chapter 4, 1 to 16, that talks about this, this nece- the necessity of, of the unity of the faith and how important that is with, with living out our salvation. In Philippians, Paul tells them to beware of the dogs, which is false teachers. In Colossians, deals with the uh, false teaching there that had infiltrated the church, the uh, proto-Gnosticism that had infiltrated the church, and Paul's dealing with that. And then First and Second Thessalonians, questions about eschatology. First Timothy, which you ladies are studying, Paul begins that letter and he says in verse 3, as I urged you when I was going to Macedonia, remain at Ephesus so that you may charge certain persons not to teach any different doctrine. And so Timothy's ministry at the church in Ephesus was literally to charge false teachers in the church to stop teaching their different doctrines. Well, the whole book of Second Peter was written to counter a, a growing influence of false teachers there who were infiltrating the churches of Asia Minor. And, and the churches of Asia Minor, those are the seven churches that are mentioned in Revelation 1 to 3. The book of Jude begins similarly, and it deals with false teachers and false teaching. Jude verse 3 says, Beloved, Although I was very eager to write to you about our common salvation, I found it necessary to write appealing to you to contend for the faith that was once for all delivered to the saints. For certain people have crept in unnoticed who long ago were designated for this condemnation, ungodly people who pervert the grace of our God into sensuality and deny our only master and Lord, Jesus Christ." And so Jude has to write a letter because certain ungodly people were denying the only master and Lord Jesus Christ. And if those people were successful, they would have divided the church. See, Paul had even warned the Ephesian elders of this very thing in Acts 20.29. It says, I know that after my departure, fierce wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock. And from among your own selves, and this is from among the elders, from among your own selves will arise men speaking twisted things to draw away the disciples after them. And so Paul and, and really the entire New Testament was aware of the danger of false teachers, of the danger of false 
teaching of, of the danger of unsound doctrine or even of the danger of just different teachings coming in and creating division among the church. And Paul's remedy for this is what he gives in our passage in Ephesians 4, 1 to 16. The body of Christ has a, a built-in mechanism for dealing with bad doctrine, just like this, like our physical bodies have a, a built-in mechanism, an immune system to fight off a cold. And so we have a way to grow up into Christ so that, as Titus 1.13 puts it, we may be sound in the faith. That word there, sound, in Titus 1.13 means to be healthy in the faith. There's this soundness, this healthiness, this, this wellness It's sometimes translated. And so the body of Christ has this way to deal with false teaching. You know, our passage, he puts it this way in verse 14, so that we may no longer be children tossed to and fro by the waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by human cunning, by craftiness, in deceitful schemes. Let's look at it again here. Look at, look at, I just want to read it again. I, w- I want this to be really in your minds here. Let's look at verse 11 again. It says, and he gave, and that's Christ there who gave. He gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds and teachers to equip the saints for the work of ministry, for building up the body of Christ, until we all attain to the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God to mature manhood, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ, so that we may no longer be children tossed to and fro by the waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by human cunning, by craftiness and deceitful schemes. Rather, speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in every way into Him who is the head, into Christ, from whom the whole body, joined and held together by every joint with which it is equipped, when each part is working properly, makes the body grow so that it may so that it builds itself up in love. <clears throat> like I said last time we looked at verses eleven to thirteen, and today we want to finish off verses fourteen to sixteen. And the main idea here is that the body of Christ grows towards unity through a diversity of gifted people. And these gifted people were given to the body by Jesus Christ, our Lord and our Savior and our God. And he gave these people grace, and then he gave them grace gifts, and then he gave them, these people, to his church. And so he gifted these people, and he gave them to the church. And the first and most important of these people was the apostles, The apostles in verse 11. The apostles were gifted by Christ to write for us the New Covenant Scriptures, what we call the New Testament. And the prophets in verse 11 are also are also joined with them. These are New Testament prophets, people like Jude and Luke who wrote portions of the Scripture, the New Testament, that, that they wrote along with the apostles. Now, I don't think we could overestimate the importance of this truth. Jesus Christ himself gave us the apostles and the prophets to equip us for ministry. 
And through them, we have really the most important thing besides God himself, which is the word. We have the word of God. We have God's self-revelation coming to us through the apostles and the prophets. And nothing can help us grow towards unity, like a unity of the faith, like the once for all delivered to the saints New Testament truth, the truth of really Old and New Testament. Nothing can grow us towards unity like that. And what we're talking about here then is the truth. Unity, true unity must be founded upon truth. And that's exactly what we have in the New Testament. That's exactly what we have in the scriptures is the truth from God, God's word. Now, next we have, after the apostles and prophets, we have two other people, two other kinds of people given by Christ who teach the word of God. And these people take what the apostles and prophets wrote and they teach it to equip the saints. And so these people teach the word of God and those are the evangelists and the shepherd teachers. And their ministry is to take the word of God from the apostles and the prophets and teach it to the body of Christ. They don't produce the word of God. They don't write the word of God. They take that word and they use it to equip the saints. Evangelists equip the saints with the evangel. They, they equip the saints with the, the good news of salvation through Jesus Christ. They teach the gospel and, and they teach how to proclaim it and they teach evangelism. They teach how to bring the gospel to the lost in order that they might believe and be saved. Shepherd teachers take the word of God and they use it in the other way that it's intended to function. They, they teach it or not, maybe not so much to the lost, nor with the intent to reach the lost, but they teach the word of God for believers and they shepherd and teach believers. And so the church has this twofold ministry and we have these two people to kind of help us and equip us for that ministry. Evangelists equip us for the ministry of reaching lost people, which is part one of our, our ministry. And then the shepherd teachers equip us to, to build up the saints with the word of God. And so evangelists have more to do with equipping us to reach lost people and to, to see them come to salvation. Shepherd teachers are equipping us to minister to other believers. But really, any Bible teaching ministry is going to equip us for, for both of these things. In other words, I, I think there's going to be some overlap here that we'll find. But shepherd teachers primarily shepherd and pastor God's people, and that shepherding is going to involve teaching and that teaching should not be the shepherd's thoughts or ideas. It shouldn't be the people's traditions. In other words, what are we to teach? What, what are, what's the teaching supposed to be based on? Again, it's not the shepherd's thoughts or ideas. It's not the people's tradition. Any proper ministry needs to be founded on the word of God. And the source of the teaching should be the scriptures. And the source of the scriptures is God himself. And so if we're learning from God himself through his word, then, then really ultimately we are being shepherded by God. And to the extent that that is happening, the saints are going to be equipped with the truth from God. And that truth grows us in holiness. And that truth grows us in the sound doctrine once for all delivered to the saints. 
And so we have shepherd teachers and evangelists given by Christ and gifted for these ministries, and they are equipping us for the work of the ministry. Again, in verse 12, to equip the saints for the work of ministry, for the building up or for building up the body of Christ. And we called that last time when we looked at it, the people through whom the body grows in verses 11 and 12, the people through whom the body grows. And again, the people are the apostles and prophets who gave us the word and then the evangelists and teachers who teach us that word. But then all of us together, we are called to do the work of the ministry. It's not just the evangelists. It's not just the shepherds who do it. All of us together do the work of ministry. And together we reach the unsaved with the gospel. And together we build one another up in our most holy faith. And together as we do that work of ministry, it results in the building up of the body of Christ. And so again, the body grows towards unity through a diversity of gifted people. And we are the people right here, Grace Bible Fellowship, us people, and and everyone who belongs to the church, we are the people who do the work of ministry. We're the people through whom the body grows. And then we began last time, number two, to see the, the process by which the body grows in verses 13 to 16. And in verse 13, we had the duration of the body's growth. And that happens until we all attain to the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God. The building up of the body continues until we are all like Christ. Until we all attain the unity of the faith. Until we all attain the the unity of the knowledge of the Son of God. And this continues until we are all together a mature man. And we attain to this exceeding measure at the end of verse 13 to mature manhood to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ. In other words, this work continues really until our glorification. Until in heaven with Christ, we're going to be his spotless bride. But this growth that Paul has in mind really happens now. And it's going to be completed, sure, at the end of the age, but, but that doesn't mean that we're not to be making progress now. And what he has in mind is the church right now, the church on earth. And what we see in the next verses, in verses 14 and 15, is that this growth is very much intended to impact our life on earth. It's very much for right now, and it's very much for this present life. And so now let's see, secondly, the design of the body's growth, number or letter B in your outline, the design of the body's growth in verses 14 and 15. Paul begins verse 14 with, so that. And this is really the reason to be equipped and to do the work of the ministry and to build up the body of Christ. It's so that, verse 14, so that we may no longer be children tossed to and fro by the waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine by human cunning, by craftiness in deceitful schemes. And there's a contrast here between the mature man in verse 13 and children in verse 14. Remember in verse 13, mature manhood there was literally uh, to a mature man and, and man was singular and it kind of viewed the whole body as, as one mature man. 
And that's a picture then, that was a picture of unity. It's not many men, it's not all of us kind of individually doing our own thing, not many men, not, not kind of at, at all different places, but it's, it's one mature man. And that's really the goal, but in contrast to that excellent goal, Paul recognizes that we, and he includes himself here, we are children. And we're to no longer be children, but in a sense, Paul says that, that now, the, the, you know, at the beginning of the Christian life, the, the reality is, is that we are children. We are children, but we're to no longer be children. And when we think about children, you know, you, you get this picture that they're easily swayed. They're, they're, it's easy to kind of get them to believe different things here and there. You know, they don't have the same steadfastness and steadiness that comes with maturity. Children lack the experience and the insight of, of adults, and, and so they're a great picture then of immaturity. That's, that's what a, a child is. They're, they're immature, and they're supposed to grow up to maturity. And the kind of immaturity that, that Paul pictures here is one that's, that's tossed around by various doctrines. You know, you hear one thing, oh, that sounds good, and then you hear the opposite, that sounds good too, and it's like kind of, it's back and forth here and there. <clears throat> and children is plural. And the picture is of, of many children, a, a group of immature people, each kind of doing their own thing and going their own way and following their own doctrines. And they're doing their own thing because they aren't mature in the faith and they aren't rooted and grounded, as Paul put it in chapter 3. He says a, a similar thing to this idea of rooted and grounded, Colossians 2 and verse 7. And, and why, don't we, why don't we get you to turn there? Let's go to just look at uh, Colossians chapter 2. Colossians 2, <clears throat> starting in verse 6, he says, Therefore, as you received Christ Jesus the Lord, so walk in Him, rooted and built up in him and established in the faith just as you were taught abounding in thanksgiving or if you just go back a few verses uh, chapter 1 and verse 23 where Paul says there if you indeed continue in the faith stable and steadfast this is kind of the opposite of these children tossed to and fro if you indeed continue in the faith stable and steadfast not shifting from the hope of the gospel that you heard which has been been proclaimed in all creation under heaven of which I Paul became a minister and so the children that we're thinking about here are, are children in the faith they're lacking stability and so they can be easily swayed by false doctrine or various doctrines or every wind of doctrine as Paul puts it in verse 14. Another way to think of it is to say that they can be swayed by every persuasive argument or by any teacher who comes along. There's this, this tendency to be swayed by any teacher that comes along. Whereas spiritual maturity is able to discern what the Word of God says and what it means. Spiritually mature people are not so easily tossed by every wind of doctrine. They're, they're anchored to the Scripture. Their convictions come from the Scripture, and they know how to interpret the Scripture. In fact, I want you to turn to uh, 2 Timothy chapter 2 and look at a, a really important text here. 2 Timothy 2. <clears throat> 
starting in verse 15, 2 Timothy 2.15, Paul tells Timothy, do your best to present yourself to God as one approved, a worker who has no need to be ashamed, rightly handling the word of truth. But avoid irreverent babble, for it will lead people into more and more ungodliness, and their talk will spread like gangrene. Among them are Hymenaeus and Philetus, who have swerved from the truth, saying that the resurrection has already happened. They are upsetting the faith of some. But God's firm foundation stands, and we can just stop there. Well, ladies, you've been studying 1 Timothy, and you might remember this Hymenaeus. Paul had handed him over to Satan that he, he had put him under church discipline so that he would learn not to blaspheme. And Hymenaeus then became the example to Timothy of what charging certain persons not to teach any different doctrine looked like. If you want to know the kind of person to charge, just look at Hymenaeus. And instead of rightly handling the word of truth, Hymenaeus swerved from the truth. And that kind of thing could could spread through the church, Paul recognized. It could spread through the church like gangrene. A, a little leaven leavens the whole lump. And so Timothy is going to, you know, in First Timothy, he's going to go and, and tell those people not to teach that different doctrine. In fact, if you just go, you're in Second Timothy, look at chapter 4 and verse 3, where Paul says there, for the time is coming when people will not endure sound teaching. And that word sound there, there's that same word that I mentioned in Titus 1.13. It means, it means healthy teaching. And so there's a time coming when people will not endure sound teaching, but having itching ears, they will accumulate for themselves teachers to suit their own passions and will turn away from listening to the truth and wander off into myths. And the remedy in verse 2 that Paul gave there just above that, chapter 2 Timothy 4.2, was for Timothy to preach the word. And to preach the word whether it was in season or not. And really, I, I show you all this just so that I, because I, I hope you can see the danger of being misled. There's a danger of, of being misled by bad teaching, by false teaching, by unsound teaching. And so then we ask, well, how do we protect ourselves from this? How do we, how do we guard ourselves from this? And I'm glad you asked. Well, first of all, 2 Timothy 2.15 that you just looked at. Do your best to present yourself to God as one approved, a worker who has no need to be ashamed, rightly handling the word of truth. And so we need to present ourselves to God in a, in a certain way, in a, in a way that's, that's willing to submit to His truth. And we need to present ourselves to God as one who's gonna follow Jesus Christ and live for Him and follow God's glory and do what God says. And as we do that, we need to be those who rightly handle the word of truth. There's a, a right way to handle God's word and there's a wrong way. And the right way is by sticking with the author's meaning. In men's ministry right now, we're, we're going through a little series kind of looking at hermeneutics, how to interpret scripture. 
You know, every form of communication has a meaning, and, and, and there's, there's something that the author is saying, and that's what we need to do, is we need to understand what the author is saying. We need to understand what the Scripture is. We need to get to the mind of God by understanding what the human author intended, because whatever the human author intended when he wrote Scripture is what God intends. And so our goal as we interpret the Bible is to understand what, what God means by what He says. God spoke through these men who wrote the Scripture and they were saying something for some reason to the people that they were writing to and, and we need to go and, and understand what they meant by what they said. John MacArthur often puts it this way. He says that the meaning of the Scripture is the Scripture. That's a really important sentence there. That's, that's really important to understand. The meaning of the Scripture, that's what we're talking about when we're talking about Scripture. And so that's one way to protect ourselves, present ourselves to God as one approved. Another way to protect ourselves is to be people who will stick with the truth, whatever the cost. The, the people with itching ears that we just read about in 2 Timothy 4.3, those people, they wanted to follow their own passions. They wanted to do what they wanted to do when they wanted to do it. And so they accumulated for themselves teachers to suit what they wanted, to suit their passions. And that's exceedingly dangerous. And by doing so, again, they, they turned away from listening to the truth. Or they will turn away because this is talking about a time that is coming. Again, that verse in 2 Timothy 4, 3, for the time is coming when people will not endure sound teaching, but having itching ears, they will accumulate for themselves teachers to suit their own passions and will turn away from listening to the truth and wander off into myths. And then one other way to protect ourselves is just really what we're seeing in our text. And that is simply growing in holiness and growing in the knowledge of the truth to maturity and to Christ-likeness. And that's going to keep us, according to our verse here in in chapter 4 and verse 14, that's going to keep us from being tossed by waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine. See, if we, if we do what Paul lays out for us here, then these winds and waves, we're going to recognize them for what they are. And, and what are they? Well, well they're, they're winds of doctrine that, that kind of blow through. You know, so, sometimes maybe we think when we think about this, we think about the, maybe the latest fad. A lot of churches just kind of jump on the latest fad, the latest bandwagon, the, the newest trend that, that God seems to be using or where God seems to be working. But really, every wind of doctrine really could be any teaching outside of the pure truth of God's holy word. And so look at it again in verse 14. So that we may no longer be children tossed to and fro by by the waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by human cunning, by craftiness in deceitful schemes. And the picture here is of of a succession of waves kind of tossing a boat in the water and, and it's being carried about and turned by the wind as, as the waves are coming in in this storm. And instead of unity then, the picture here is one of, of chaos and we have instability and confusion. 
Every wind of doctrine gets taken, of, taken hold of by the sails of our hearts and, and drives us into falsehood and disunity. And notice the source here where this is coming from at the end of verse 14, by human cunning. This is the source, by human cunning. What was, what was the source to be? Remember, the source was to be the Word of God that was written through the apostles and prophets. But instead, what's happening here is, is these winds of doctrine are coming from human cunning. That human cunning is, is the trickery of men in the New American Standard Bible or the Legacy Standard Bible, the trickery of men. And that word there, craftiness, means trickery or villainy or cunningness or deceitfulness. And so false teachers, empowered by Satan, seek to draw disciples after themselves, even, even resorting at times to trickery, deceitful schemes, lying, kind of lying plans, wicked men relying on their own resources. But, but it can sway us if we're not mature in the faith. That word there, schemes, is used in Ephesians 6.11 of the schemes of the devil. And so false teaching is human or satanic or even sometimes both. In whatever form it comes, it's, it's either human or satanic or both. And it's always damning or destructive. It wreaks havoc in the church. It leads people astray. It stunts our spiritual growth and it causes disunity in the church. And so it's no wonder that Paul points us to the remedy here in Ephesians chapter 4. As we grow together by feeding on the truth of God's Word, we will learn to recognize when someone, cunning as they might be, when someone tries to serve us garbage. When someone tries to serve us false doctrine. And if we grow and if we're built up in the body of Christ, then then that kind of being tossed by every wind of doctrine is going to cease. And that must cease. But now Paul goes on to the more positive side of this, and, and here's what, what must be done. So he told us what needs to stop, this, that we would no longer be this way, but now he's going to tell us what we got to do on the positive side. Here's what will be done if we are doing the work of the ministry, if we're serving the Lord together in the way that he intends. Verse 15 will happen. Rather, speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in every way into him who is the head into Christ. And so speaking the truth in love, this is the opposite. This is what's supposed to be happening instead of getting tossed by doctrine. Instead, we're supposed to be speaking the truth in love. Now, I think when, when, I, when I think about this verse, it's often used in the sense of um, maybe telling people hard things, maybe, maybe telling them something hard to hear about their character. Have you ever, have you ever heard the, this verse kind of used that way? Have you ever, have you ever thought about it that way? Kind of like, oh, speaking the truth in love, like I'm going to tell someone something hard, but, but in love, they, they just need to hear that. You know, we, we are to speak the truth in love and, and, and we are to go and confront a person that's, that's in a sin and, and tell them some hard truths about themselves. And we're to do that if we have to do it. We're to, we're to do it in love. We're to restore gently those who are caught in any transgression, the Galatians 6, 1. 
And such a case would involve speaking the truth in love. But if you think about this here, what what truth does Paul have in mind in the context here? What is he talking about here when he says speaking the truth in love? And what he's thinking about, what's, what has to be on his mind here is true doctrine. He's talking about true faith. He's talking about the one faith, the true body of the faith, the true knowledge of the Son of God. The truth that believers were equipped with by their teacher shepherds who carefully divided that truth from the word of God, which is always true. That's the truth that he's talking about that we're to be speaking. And so it comes from God to the apostles through gifted teachers who teach us from the word. And, and we can study the word ourselves as well. But, but all of us kind of working together and building one another up in our holy faith, we are, we are now speaking this truth to one another in love. And so we are building one another up in sound doctrine. And it's an amazing thing when you see like a church that, that's been doing this for 50 years, that's had good, sound teaching, godly, biblical teaching, and you see the growth in the body and the maturity and the stability and the unity in a church like that. And that's what we hope, God willing, our church will be as we continue to open the word week after week and do expository preaching and see what the word of God says and what it means. But this is the truth that we are to speak to one another. Later in Ephesians, we're going to see that that those who are filled by the Spirit in chapter 5 and verse 18, where it says, do not get drunk with wine, for that is dissipation, but be filled with or be filled by the Spirit, speaking to one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing and making melody with your heart to the Lord, always giving thanks for all things in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ to God, even the Father. And what we see here or what we're going to see here when we get to this verse is that the evidence of being filled by the Spirit is this ministering to one another by speaking to one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs. And so there's this this speaking of the truth in love that's happening. It's an evidence of the filling of the Spirit in our lives and even the singing of the truth in love when we sing true and, and biblical songs. And again, speaking the truth in love is the opposite of hearing and being carried away by false teaching or false doctrine. Now, sometimes people want to separate truth and love, but really these things belong together, truth and love. You know, there, there is such a thing as handling the truth in a harsh and unloving way, and, and, and we get that. You know, there, there's such a thing as arrogance. There, there, there's a, a kind of, of doctrinal pride that rudely and impatiently wields the sword of truth, and, and, and I understand that. But we, we can't really separate these two things. We can't turn it around and say, well, that there's a, there's such a thing as love that's, that's light on the truth. It, you know, it's never loving to withhold the truth. And I, I'm talking about biblical truth here. I'm not talking about telling someone, you know, what your sinful heart thinks of them. That's not what we're talking about here. We're talking about speaking biblical truth to one another. You know, there's a, there's a place to exercise self-control in our speech, and, and that's a good thing, but, but really what, what I want to get across here is that love and truth go hand in hand. 
And the most loving thing that we can do for, for another person or the most loving thing that we can do for anyone is to bring them the truth about God and the truth about man and the truth about Christ and the truth about salvation. And so speaking the truth is always loving, even if the hearer finds it offensive. You know, love means seeking the benefit of the one we love. We often define love as, as, as seeking the highest benefit for the one that we love. And the highest benefit is God himself. And how do we get to know God? It's by speaking the truth. And that's a loving thing. And so that's what Paul has in mind here, speaking the truth in love. Therefore, to truly love those around us, we must communicate the truth to them. We must tell them the truth. And this is how we grow. This is how the body of Christ grows, by speaking the truth in love, by telling one another truth from God's word. And as we do this, it's going to grow us towards unity. This grows us into him who is the head into Christ at the end of verse 15. And so we've seen so far the duration of the body's growth in verse 13. We've seen the design of the body's growth in verses 14 and 15. And now finally, let's look at, in verse 16, the description of the body's growth. Look at verse 16. It says, from whom, let me just say before I even read this verse, this is one of the most complex verses that that Paul could have ever wrote, I think. It's from whom the whole body joined and held together by every joint with which it is equipped, when each part is working properly, makes the body grow so that it builds itself up in love. Very difficult verse to translate, and it's basically a summary of everything that we've seen already up to this point. There's a lot going on in in this complex clause or series of clauses, but if we simplified this, to its most basic form, if, if those of you who know how to do like sentence diagramming or whatever in, in your, your beginning um, grammar lessons from elementary school, if you still remember those, if we could kind of take this sentence and, and simplify it to its most basic form, it, this is what it would say, from whom the body makes itself grow. Isn't that interesting? From whom the body makes itself grow. From Christ, that's the whom there, from Christ, the body makes the body grow. Christ is our head, he is our leader, and and he's really then in this text the ultimate source of our growth. Everything comes from him, everything flows down to us from Christ. And all this started in verse 7 and verse 11 where Christ was the one who gave each one grace, and then he gave the apostles to equip us. And so now we're reminded of that again, that that all growth comes from our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, the head of the body. But then as we kind of dig in deeper here, we recognize that he is working through us. You see, we are his body on the earth. We are united to him. And every individual believer has a unique part to play in the building up of the body of Christ. We are involved in our own growth. The body is involved. Together we are involved in our own growth. And that word there translated in the ESV joined was used for construction with stones. And it's really a a cool word. Each each stone, as as they built their rock structures in Israel, in ancient Israel, they would would just use stones and, and no mortar. 
And so they would, they would carefully join the stones to the structure and they would make sure that they fit solid and they didn't shake and that there was, they'd chip it and, and, and fit it and, and, and put each piece together so that it would be strong and so that the structure could be built on that stone. And so each stone was carefully joined, that's our word, to the structure. Carefully smoothed, carefully fitted together. And they, they, they fit these houses perfectly together. And it's a great picture then of the body of the church that each of us are fitted together, each, each piece given by God and fit together in this, this building that God is building. The next word there translated held together means to unite something or to bring together or even to knit together. And so we have another picture of a very close connection. Those of you who do knitting, you, you kind of know that, that every piece kind of fits together. The whole thing is, is together. And in knitting, what happens if you, if you pull out one stitch in the middle of the garment? You know, what if you just, what if I just came along and cut out one stitch of your knitted afghan? Though pretty soon the, the whole thing would kind of tear apart. Or imagine a, a house where you could just take out one stone and there's this, there's this stone missing, especially when it's minus 26. It's not going to be a nice thing to have missing there. And that's kind of the idea of us being joined together. Every piece is necessary. Every piece is connected to the pieces around it. Look at the next section of our verse. It says again in verse 16, from whom the whole body joined and held together by every joint with which it is equipped. And so every joint in the body, and I'm just talking about our physical body, every joint is supported and supporting the other parts of the physical body. And it's the same with the body of Christ. And it's a picture here of our mutual dependence on one another. Every joint is important in this body. And every joint is a part of the equipment that the body has. And so again, we see this mutual dependence on one another. Every joint is held together and joined. And when each part is working properly, and when that happens, the body grows. When each part is working properly, when each, with, with, when every joint is kind of equipped and the, everything's working together in the body, it makes the body grow so that it builds itself up in love. And so the body grows and we grow again to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ. We build one, we, we build ourselves up. We build the body up in love and the body of Christ of which we are a part if we are in Christ, it, it builds itself up in love. And so this is a des- description of the body's growth. And it reminds us once again that we all have a part to maintain, a, a part to play as we seek to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. And so if we seek to do this, we're going to grow together, both relationally relating with one another well, and even doctrinally growing in our understanding and unity in the word of God. Let's pray together. Father, we, we thank you for this passage that we've been able to look at over the last five or, or six weeks or so. And Father, we just pray now that, that you would see to it that this happens in our lives, that you would help us to eagerly maintain the unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace. 
That you would help us to walk worthy of our salvation by walking in relational unity. And that you would help us to walk worthy of our salvation even by walking in doctrinal unity. That you would grow us in our knowledge of the faith and in our knowledge of the Son of God. That we would be mature as a body here at Grace Bible Fellowship. That we wouldn't be tossed to and fro by every wind of doctrine. Father, we ask that you would protect us from false doctrine from false teaching, and from any source of disunity. We pray, Father, that you would be glorified in our church and that you would use this passage in our lives that we might glorify you and walk worthy of this great salvation that you've given us. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.